Let's pray. Father, we confess better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. To see your beauty, to see you face to face, to know you is what we long for. To know you is life. And Father, we pray this morning as we come to your word, as we look to you to speak to us, we ask that you would do that, do that, that you would transform our hearts and our lives, that you would continue to transfer that desire, that you would take our hearts and you would turn them towards you, that we can be the kinds of people who wholeheartedly desire to please you and obey you and desire to be in your presence. Use your word this morning in the way that only you can that we go deep into our lives, that you would deal with any resistance in our hearts, that you would prepare us, not just for this day, but for every day forward, that we would please you and be a delight to your heart. So guide us this morning, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, and as you do, you can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um... So it's interesting trying to figure out a passage when you're doing once. I'll be preaching this week and Chad next week. Uh, you might find Bill out here with a, without a tie on today. So you can look and see, but it's a great opportunity to come and to... No, he didn't have a tie on. I see that. So you'll come and, and fill in. Trust that God will use this. I'm going to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 23. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they just devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, 
Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you the king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us just to keep in mind a couple of things where we are. We happen to sit on the last day of this year, 2006. It's a great day to end the year on, on Sunday. And I want us to think a little bit about, as we look forward and we look back, about the things that please God. And we're going to use this passage, if you will, as a lens to ask the question, what is it that pleases God? What is it that He wants? And what is it that He despises? What is it that He does not want to see in our lives? If you're like me, at the end of the year, many people try at least to take an inventory of the past. The past year and kind of assess how they've done with their time, how they've done with their eating, how they've done with their money. And if you're like me, you make a list. You make a list of things and then you might compare that list to the one you did last year or the one you did two years ago or five years ago and you might not find much difference between those lists. And each time you wonder, I, I wonder if there's any change that's going to actually take place in my life. And yet we do that. We take this time and the opportunity to look back and to look forward. And I want to take this opportunity this morning just to ask this question and say, as we look forward to this next year, 2007, and we ask the question, what will please God? What is it that will bring Him pleasure in our lives? And we can use this as an example for us, really a negative example. And we can see in this what God doesn't want to see. And we'll, we'll see in Saul a couple of things. We're going to see pretension and we're going to see presumption. We're going to see a heart that has no interest in really following God, but has an interest primarily in himself. An interest not so far from us. An interest that we wrestle and struggle with. But we're going to ask the question, how can we live out a life that honors him? How can we please him and bring him delight in this upcoming year and certainly for the rest of our lives? As we look at Saul, we're going to ask three questions. The first question is, what is it that pleases God? What is it that he wants as we look at this passage, the second question, which will follow the first, second question is, how does God respond to disobedience? As we look at that question, we're going to see that that will help us as we see how God responds. It will help us desire to follow him. It will help us desire to trust him wholeheartedly. And the third question we're going to ask is, what's so serious in God's eyes about what Samuel does? And we'll see that it will encourage us even more to live the kind of life that will honor him of wholehearted obedience. A little bit of background on this. A few weeks ago, I, I spoke, I preached from 1 Samuel chapter 8, talked about this transition period in, in Israel and the nation where they were transitioning from judges being ruled by judges, judges to the monarchy, where they would be ruled by a king. In 1 Samuel 8, we looked at that it was their desire 
Indeed, it was their demand to, to demand of God a king. And God says, okay, I will give you a king. And he says to Samuel, who, they, who receives the request, and he says, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me as king. If you remember, if you look back at that, you see that they thought that having a king, as they said, just like all the other nations, would be the solution to all their problems. They thought their, their own design to their, their solution would be, the, would be what they wanted. Indeed, God says, okay, you can give them a king, but warn them that what they think is their solution will not be, and that they will actually find themselves enslaved to the very answer that they have. They think that the king will save them, will solve their problems. They'll find exactly the opposite. And so God says, you can have a king. And then from that point on, he selects Saul. And Saul, if you remember, if you read back through that, you'll see that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a good-looking guy. And, um, and he, he was chosen. He was a king like all the other nations. He did look the part. He looked very kingly, if you would. But we're going to find, if you read between that chapter, chapter 9, up to where we are now, and indeed this one and the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, you would find that it's not a very flattering picture of his character. It's not a very flattering picture of his heart for God. He looked good on the outside, but we're going to find there's a big, big void in his life, in his character. And we're going to see that what was revealed was a heart that was far from being committed to God. He was interested only in himself. This particular chapter we're looking at, we see in the first few verses this command that comes to them to destroy, to utterly destroy the, the Amalekites. It's, it's hard language in some ways. That the, the command is utter destruction. And if you remember from what uh, Bill preached when he preached through Joshua, he touched on this a couple different places. In Jericho and Ai, you have this command to utterly destroy. In one case, it's God's prerogative to do this. It's a very just thing to do. God calls him to utterly destroy the Amalekites. We know for certain that their sin had reached its fullness. We know that when God commands utter destruction of a people, an entire people, there's something about where they have reached in their character and their whole lifestyle that's characterized by ungodliness that he can do this. If you will, he is justified. If God needs to be justified, we understand that to be the case. So instead of them taking the spoil, which they would normally do in battle, everything is to be destroyed, and that's the command. A couple things that's important for us as we think about the Amalekites, and in this particular situation, the Amalekites, what God is calling them out for is a situation earlier in the, in the history of Israel where they were coming out of Egypt. And the Amalekites attacked Israel, the nation of Israel, as they were coming out of Egypt. And, the, and if you go back to Deuteronomy 25, we won't look there now, but for reference, 25, 17 through 19, we see there described what they did. And it says they attacked. There's two different issues. One, about the timing of their attack that reveals about their character and where they had come. First of all, the timing of their attack was that it was when they were faint and weary. If you can imagine, they've come out of slavery. They're in the, they're in the desert. They're wandering around. They're moving. They're tired and they're weary. And you have the Amalekites attacking them at this point in time. The second thing that's important that, that uh, Moses notes for us in that, in that passage is that their method was that they attacked from the rear. They attacked the, the rear of the, the group of people. And if you can imagine, who would be at the, at the end of the line? It would be those who are most, the most elderly, those who are least likely to defend themselves, those who are most helpless. And so that's what God is calling into question here. And that's what God is judging them for, both their timing as well as their method. They took no consideration for human dignity in what they did. 
and they attacked them, people who could not defend themselves, as opposed to engaging in normal rules of war. And so God, because of this, calls Samuel to give this word to, to Saul that they would utterly destroy the Amalekites. That's in the first three verses. It goes on. You have the outcome of the battle. There's preparation. Then the outcome. We learn that it's successful. We learn that the battle, they go and they defeat them. However, we, we find that they're unfaithful in their, in their victory. There's an extensive victory, but they spare Agag. They spare the best of the livestock. And then everything else is destroyed except for the king and except for uh, the animals that they chose. Following that, there's this confrontation between Samuel and Saul where Samuel comes and he confronts him and he says, if you, were, if you obeyed the Lord, where did these animals come from? What, what is this that I hear in my ears? And if you, as I read through that, you probably caught that Saul was basically trying to justify what he had done. He was trying to rationalize you know, the, the confiscation of all this, if you will, the, the spoil from this and the animals. And he, so he tries to justify it. He blames it on the people. He blames it on everybody except taking responsibility for himself. In the rest of the chapter, you would find an attempt at Saul's repentance, although it's flimsy and weak. And then Agag at the very end is finally killed. So that, that's an overview of the chapter as we look at this, and the first question we want to ask is, what is it that pleases God? What is it that, we, that He wants to see in Saul and what He wants to see in us? As we think about this upcoming year, what is it that He really wants? And we see that what God primarily wants, before He wants anything else from us, He wants our obedience. That He demands and requires and desires and delights in our wholehearted obedience. If you look at the very first uh, phrase, the very first verse, of chapter 15, we see this primary command where Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over, this, over his people Israel. Now therefore listen. God, the first thing God says to him, the first word of the Lord is now listen to what God has said. Listen to the command that I have for you. That's a primary command. It's a number of times it's used throughout uh, this particular chapter. The word is translated a variety of different ways. It can be listen. It can be hear. And it can also be translated obey. And we understand that to listen to God, the king of the universe, is to hear God. And to hear what he says is to obey him. It's to do what he says without question. And so the exact same word can be translated in any one of those ways. The word is, is um, the Hebrew word, a few words I know, is shema. Some of you might be familiar from Deuteronomy 6. There's a passage that's called the shema. And it begins like this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all your might. It means to hear and to listen and to know this God and to give him yourself wholeheartedly. To hear the king. But we see that what Saul did, he did not listen wholeheartedly, but he listened selectively. He listened to hear what he wanted to. And if you will, he translated, he he listened through the lens of his own desires as opposed to listening to what God completely had for him. In verse 9, you, when I read through that, you, you can see that but that begins the verse. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. They would not devote the things that they wanted to destruction, but they did the things they did not want. And so you see there that, that Saul listened selectively. They went into battle, they won the battle, but they did not fully obey and carry out what God asked them to do. To fully destroy this group of people. And the question we need to ask is, what were his motives? We've certainly hinted at it. 
but we might ask the question, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was just that he was compassionate. Maybe he was showing compassion on this group of people that, that God wasn't to show, and so he attempted to do that, and we might say, was it compassion? Well, who lived? The animals and the king. I'm not sure much compassion was really shown by him. And so we have, it wasn't compassion. He wasn't showing compassion. You might say, did he, did he misunderstand what God said? Did he maybe misunderstand the meaning of this ban that's placed on them, the utter destruction? Does total destruction really mean total? He knew. And you read, if you read on, you find that even in his own words, he says, I did complete it. We did utterly destroy everyone, well, except for these. He didn't misunderstand. God didn't stutter. The word was clear. The bottom line was that he was interested in what he could gain from it. The bottom line was what he could get out of it, he would take. If you think about it, he's the king. Maybe not the strong, but the first king. He's needing to work on his public opinion. He needed to work on the, you know, the, the what do they call them, the, the polls, public opinion polls. Uh, anyway, he's wanting to work on those. So what he does, it seems, that he seems to allow the people to take the best of the spoil, the best of the animals. He's kind of got this thing going. We will sacrifice him to kind of rationalize what he's doing. The people will think well of me as their king. You know, I'll, I'll firm up my political position. I will use for advantage this situation here. Even though God said to do this, I don't have to do this. It might seem kind of foolish for that to be the case, to destroy these animals. But you see that what Saul wanted was nothing more than his own benefit from attempting and at least putting forth some sort of effort in obeying God. But he did not. He listened only selectively. He listened through the lens of what he wanted and not what God had said. He wanted the livestock. They wanted the livestock. It was certainly useful, not to mention tasty. They could, they could enjoy. And we see this later, this rationalization, indicating that these animals were to be used for some sort of sacrifice. As we look at Saul, we find that he did not seek to please God wholeheartedly. That his greatest interest was his own interest. And that was central here. His ear, if you will, was tuned to hear what he wanted to hear. And for us to live the kinds of lives that please God wholeheartedly, our ears and our lives reminds him to be tuned to what God says and to be willing to listen wholeheartedly. Because what God most wants is wholehearted listeners and obeyers, if you could put it like that. He wants listeners and obeyers. That's his desire for us. And here's the beauty of obedience to God. We use the phrase, and even as you're preparing this, this wholehearted obedience, I don't know about you, but I find even as I say, we talk about wholehearted obedience, you find the gaps in your own heart. You find the crevices where you want what you want. And you look at Saul and you go, of course, I understand that because it's where we are But what God wants to call us to is that kind of obedience that he will do in us. He doesn't call or demand or require, if I can make this contrast, he doesn't require perfect obedience in the sense that we have to do it exactly right. But what he calls and desires and demands is wholehearted obedience. He wants that our hearts would be his, that our desire ultimately is to please him. Whether we get it just right or not, it's about pleasing him and bringing delight to him. And that's something that he has to do in us. That's a work that his, the gospel does in turning us. And we go, okay, I don't have to do it just right, but I want to do it for him. And that in and of itself is something that brings pleasure to God. Even as we attempt to be wholehearted people that follow God. So the first question is, what does he want? 
He desires wholehearted listeners, wholehearted obeyers, not selective hearers that we see Saul in his life. The next question that follows, if we want to be wholehearted listeners, we need to look and see how God responds to Saul. What is the impact, what is the effect of sin, of disobedience on our relationship with God? What does it do to us? There is an impact on God and there's an impact on us. In verse 11, you'll see this response. It's a very interesting word, certainly used in relation to God. It's used quite a number of times where God says, I regret that I made Saul king. Some of your versions will say, I'm sorry that I made Saul king. Other older versions will say, I repent of making Saul king. And you go, wait a second here, what's going on here? When does God repent or regret or what does it mean that he, exactly that he is sorry? Well, if you'll turn with me real quick to Genesis chapter 5. There's another use of the same word that, that's helpful for us. When does God regret? And what does that mean? Did I say 5? Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of all the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You see there that the condition was man, of man was such that he was evil, and the, acts of, the condition of his heart was evil all the time in an ongoing way. What characterized man in this state was ongoing continual disobedience and evil. And so how does God respond? He responds with sorrow. It's the same thing here, the same word. When God regrets, he is sorry. He, he is sorrowful of the outcome of the situation. Now, it's important for us, when God says he's sorry, it doesn't mean that he is surprised. It doesn't mean that in any way that he was, un, he was not expecting this to happen, or that he didn't know it was going to happen. And so you have a sorrow over a situation. And what we're seeing here is, is, is emotion, if I can say it like this, in a way that God expresses emotion. Okay, we express emotion in most situations when? When things happen that we didn't expect. When we are surprised, when somebody cuts us off in traffic, we didn't expect that, we express emotion. God doesn't express emotion in the same way, but we find Him to be a relational being. We find Him to experience real hurt when His people do not follow Him. And that's what's going on here. We see Him expressing sorrow over Saul's disobedience. It's not over this one incident. It's not just because he went out to this one mission and he omitted, you know, he accidentally brought back the king or, you know, accidentally disobeyed or whatever. What you find as you read through the life of Saul up to this point, and certainly even following, you find that there's an ongoing characterization of Saul as being one who disobeys God. Saul could be characterized as one who disobeyed God. Or let me put it this way. He could be characterized as one who listened selectively, who obeyed selectively, not completely. And so what God is judging him, God rejecting him as king for, is because this ongoing lifestyle of disobedience. And God is sorrowful over that. And we don't want to miss the amazing truth that God is affected by the sins of his people. That he feels it. It's not like, oh, I knew that was going to happen, no biggie. It is, he feels it. There's an... He, he expresses sorrow and emotion over the sins of his people. His heart is grieved over the ongoing disobedience that, 
the sin of his children, the sin that we perform. God responds, however, not with sorrow. He is a relational being. He responds, when he responds with sorrow, he also shifts. There's a change or a shift. When he, when he shifts here, when it says that he regrets having made Saul king, he begins to put in place something else. A change in the way that he's going to carry out his plan. We'll see here a change of God's mind. Not a change of his purposes. Not a change of what he ultimately wants to do, but a change in how he's going to carry that out. Saul was placed in, as a king. He was promised the role of a king. But it was connected. It was contingent, if you will, on a certain type of life. It was contingent upon following God wholeheartedly, upon obeying his commands. So God shifted or changed his purposes. Let me give you an example. Um, as, as a parent, things happen on occasion in my house where, um, let me, here's my, what might happen. It happened frequently. We'd be sitting at the dinner table and we're just beginning to start our dinner and we would eat, beginning to eat. And very quickly, there might be a, a question that would come from one of my kids. And the question might go like this and they know who to ask, they know to ask me. They would say, hey, dad, can we have ice cream after the meal? Can we have ice cream after the meal? And they, they know that I want to say yes. I say yes quite often to, the, to that question, answer to that question. And so what will happen on occasion, I'll say, yes, we can have ice cream after checking with the wife. Can we have ice cream? Yeah, we can have ice cream. We can have ice cream after the meal. And so there's a, an unqualified promise to my kids, you can have ice cream after the meal. However, what happens hypothetically on occasion is that between the time at which the promise is made and the time at which the ice cream is to be received, something happens to, in them, to them. Their behavior is adjusted just a little bit. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe they don't eat their meal. Maybe they um, throw a, a tantrum of some sort. But something happens in their behavior, which then we come to the point, and I will say, no, 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 we're not having ice cream. There will be no ice cream tonight. And what's the first thing they say? Well, you promised we could have ice cream. Well, my promise had an implied commitment to it, right? And as a parent, I had the prerogative to do that. What is connected with the ice cream is a certain kind of behavior between the promise and the outcome of the promise. And I can withdraw that promise if I want to based upon their behavior. And what happens in the situation is that God has changed his mind about who would be king. And he can do that because what we find in that what Saul has done is that his kingship was tied and dependent upon a certain kind of behavior. It was committed, it was connected inseparably to fulfilling God's law. It was connected to following God wholeheartedly. And when that didn't happen, God promised and rejected him as king. Saul's position and role as king was inseparably tied to listening, obeying the real king, and thus he forfeited that. God changed his mind. We have emotion, yes, but we have a shift in the way God related to Saul, and thus we have a shift in the way that God would work through and how he would use Saul, and the same is true for us. When we recognize that our ongoing disobedience are consistently not listening wholeheartedly to God, but listening selectively to him, we find that it grieves his heart, but also affects our relationship with him. When we live in ongoing sin and disobedience to him, it affects the way that we relate to him and he to us. I'm not calling in question necessarily the, the, the permanency of our relationship with him, but rather the, the intimacy of it and the fellowship. 
And if you've been there, you know that living in that kind of ongoing disobedience is not a pleasant thing. And our intimacy with God is broken. And his, the degree to which he can use us in that state must be altered. And so we find that as God responds, he regrets, if you will. He has sorrow over the sin of Saul. And he changes the way that he's going about to bring his plan. But the good news is that, that God not only grieves the sin of his people, but he delights in the obedience of his people. It's not just that he grieves that he's sorrow, but there's a pleasure that God has in the delight. And he delights in the obedience of those who would follow him wholeheartedly. Saul had, re- had rejected his role because of his disobedience. He didn't understand what God delighted in and what God wanted and what most was valuable to him. And for us, as we think about the upcoming year, we can think about the fear and the, the reality of God's response to our sin. And that's a good thing, the fear of God. But even more so, I think the gospel enables us, the truth of what God has done in our lives is that we can enjoy and we can bring him delight. That we can know that he will enable us to be obedient. And that we, by our decisions, by our following him, by pursuing him, maybe not perfectly, but wholeheartedly, that he bring, there's delight that's given to him. So the first question is, what does God want? Wholehearted obedience. Not just selective hearing on, on our parts. The second question, how does he respond with, with grieving, with emotion, as well as delight to obedience? At the same time, there's always a shift. As we live out this life in obedience, our relationship with him will grow. It will become more intimate and more vital. And the delight in him will grow. Well, the final question I want to ask is, why is this so serious? And we need to ask this question as we look at what Saul has done. And it's helpful for us because if we say, how can we live out wholeheartedly our obedience? We need to know how our sin affects God, how it affects us. And then we need to know the seriousness, the gravity of it. What exactly has gone on here? There's, there's a few verses that give us a clue as to what Saul was about, more explicitly about what his heart was, what he really wanted. If you look in verse 12, um, in verse 12 you see that what did Saul do after winning the battle? He comes back and he sets up a monument to himself. He goes out on God's mission. He wins God's victory. He partially obeys. And what does he do? He sets a monument up who? For himself. In recognition of himself and who he was. You see who he was about and what he was most committed to was himself. And then in verse 15 and 21, we find that as Saul sets up this, the monument earlier, then we see that, that in, in his uh, dialogue with Samuel, what he does is he does nothing more than blame the people for taking the animals. It says that, that they took the animals. And then if you look in verse, verse 15... Um, it says that they spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice. And then he says it this way, to the Lord your God. We see that there's some attempt to appease, some attempt to appease Samuel, the judge here. That Saul says, well, we're going to do sacrifices with him. And somehow to justify or somehow to rationalize what he attempted to do. All the while, what he's trying to do is put forth, if you will, in pretense, trying to display that he had actually obeyed. He says, I fully obeyed. But in fact, he had not. In fact, what he had most in mind was his own interest. What he most wanted was the pleasure. He wanted the, the people's interest in him. And he forgot the audience that really matters. And what Samuel does is that he identifies the nature of the sin. Because we can ask the question, 
Doesn't God give partial credit? He had done most of that. You know, he went out and he won the battle and he killed most of them. He did most of what God asked, but not all of it. Does God give partial credit? And the answer from verses 22 and 23 is no. Because we understand exactly what was going on here. God has no interest in vain, self-centered, apparent acts of worship. Verse 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. You see that he asked him a question. He says, so what is it that God most wants? What is it that he is after? Does he want sacrifices, or does he want obedience? Does he want your external actions, or does he want your heart? And then he answers the question. He says, what he wants is obedience. Before we bring him anything else, we need to bring him an obedient life. We need to bring him a heart that desires to serve him. That's what he desires most. And then he goes on to describe the sin even further in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as the iniquity of idolatry. A couple things he calls it. He says, Samuel, what you have done, it's not just you've kind of partially done the will of God. What you have done is that you have rebelled against the king of heaven. What you have done is you have taken his place and you have disobeyed his king. And you have sought an answer, if you will, from someone else besides him. You have filtered his words through your own wishes and set yourself up as king and done what you wanted. You have committed rebellion and you have presumed upon his grace. It says the presumption is this presumption or arrogance or insubordination is the iniquity of idolatry. This presumption is the arrogance that usurps his rule. That says, you know what? I know God said this, but you know who I am. I'm the king of Israel. And, you know, I'm going to adjust just a little bit what he said. I, I can step into that role and it assumes his role. And the danger for us, the danger for them, in that, is that the externalities of religion can take the place of a heart committed to Christ. He wanted to come and commit and bring sacrifices. And he thought that by bringing these sacrifices, which were supposed to be God's in, in the first place, that in some way he could undo his disobedience or that somebody would override his disobedience. He thought that religious activities could substitute for wholehearted obedience, and it can't. It, nothing will substitute in God's eyes for obedience apart from that. They can't be a substitute for the real thing. If indeed we attempt to do that, if we attempt to say, you know, I'll give him my money, I'll give him my time, but you know what, I don't know about this area of my life. What we find is it rips the heart out of our faith. Do you remember what Christ, his words for the Pharisees? He says, you whitewash tombs. You remember when he described them, and we see New Testament describing them in such a way that they were empty shells. There was nothing there. There was a veneer. There was a facade on the outside with nothing. Your hearts are far from me, he wrote. And so we have this reality that, that our hearts are far from him, that, that the sin that, that, he, that Saul was a part of was a sin of pretension. It was a sin, a sin attempting to look good when indeed he was not. He pretended to obey even as he disobeyed. He tried to dress up his disobedience in clothes that resembled obedience. He attempted to put forward that, to make a disguise of that. He wanted to look godly, 
but he wasn't willing to pay the cost for it. And so he pretended that he obeyed when he was really only interested in what he could get. And God will not stand for this in our lives. He wouldn't stand it for him, primarily because nothing can be built on pretension. When we're only concerned about the outside and not the inside, nothing can really happen. What God wants first and foremost is our hearts. But we know this. We know what it means. We wonder what people think. We question and we want to look good in the eyes of other people. And there's certainly a part of that. doesn't mean we will look bad. But when that takes the place or when that becomes primary over what God ultimately thinks, then we misunderstand what God is really after, what he most wants, his wholehearted obedience. We find that here when we walk, and God wants us to live unpretentious lives, sincerely walk humbly before him. The other thing we see is this idea of presumption that prevents us from pleasing God, that prevented Saul from pleasing God. Presumption is an arrogance or a stubbornness. It's insubordination. In the end, it's, excuse me, in the end it is an unwillingness to respond to him, to say, no, I won't do what you want. If I do it, I'll only do it partially. Saul had assumed that the value of what he desired in light of his role as king in some way rendered God's commands as adjustable or adaptable to his wishes. Saul assumed that the, he, he desired, let me rephrase that, Saul assumed or presumed that the value of what he desired in light of his role as king in some way rendered what God wanted adaptable or adjustable to what he wanted. And so what did he do? His wishes and desires became more valuable than God's. And he saw what God said, saw through the lens of his own wishes. Question, what is it that God wants? Wholehearted obedience. Not just selectivity in our hearing and our obedience. We find we cannot be perfectly obedient. But we find that the gospel works and dwells in us to enable us to be wholehearted, to cultivate wholehearted lives. It doesn't happen today or tomorrow. It won't happen in 2007. But God promises to do that. The gospel promises to do that in our lives. How does God respond? He responds in sorrow over our sin, and he responds in delight over our obedience. We have, as we live by his power, as we walk with Christ, the amazing ability, the capacity to bring delight to the king of heaven, that he would look upon us and and delight in us in the obedience that we bring to him, the same obedience that Christ has purchased, the obedience that he has enabled us to live out, that he will delight in us. So more than even just the fear of displeasure, and that's a real thing, should be that delight that we can bring to him through our obedience. And then finally, to understand that pretension and presumption, living lives that are fake, that are phony, that somehow have an appearance of reality but, are, but lack the substance, um, God hates. Saul's issue wasn't just what he did, it's what he did and then tried to cover up. And we need God to rid that in our lives as well. The gospel does that. Just to conclude here, we're not gonna, can't do much with this, but Saul, if you read on in the chapter, you'll find that there's a weak, flimsy attempt at repentance. Basically, all he wants to do in kind of saying, I'm sorry, is can we just make this right? But, you know, Samuel, he says, don't go anywhere. Stay with me. Just I need to keep my kingdom intact, even as he's been rejected. There was no real repentance. But the gospel for us paves the way for us to have real repentance. God knows our sin. He knows who we are in and out even more than we know ourselves. And because of what Christ has done on our behalf, because of the forgiveness we have, we can live openly before him. We can confess our sins openly before him. We can repent and turn from them and turn towards him 
because that's what he desires and that's what he'll enable us to do. And the beauty of that is it enables us relationally as well. We don't have to hide from each other. We don't have to hide from God. We can live lives, as one has said, with the roof off and the walls down. There's hope of change that the gospel brings, even this next year. I might still have the same things on my list as I had a year ago, but I can trust that as God is at work in my life and he's at work in yours, that my heart will be just a little bit more his, that my desire to please him will be just a little bit more, and that will be the thing that sustains me and that sustains us as as believers, as followers of the God of heaven for this upcoming year. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for pictures. We, we could step right into Saul's shoes. We, we, we know what this is like. We have pretended to obey. We have put forth these kinds of, built these facades that others see and they look great. And on the inside, there is very little there. But would you tear down our facades? Would you make us humble, sincere, submissive people who look to you, who obey you wholeheartedly, who desire that beyond and be beyond anything else. Would you do the work in us that we most need to change our hearts and make them yours? Would it enable us to rely and to live and to rest in the obedience that Christ has already purchased for us and that that would grow in us? Father, we don't know what this next year holds, but we know that your desire is that it will work in us the kinds of things that will bring delight. And we pray that you would enable us to be people who listen wholeheartedly and not just selectively. Would you do that in us this year, the rest of our lives? Sustain us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.